Hello and welcome to a special edition of Open Mic, Sheed's 50 Years in Footy. It is half a century since a confident, ambitious teenager named Kevin Sheedy arrived at Richmond Football Club to start his amazing football odyssey. Now approaching 70, Sheedy has been a significant contributor to three Richmond premierships as a player, four flags from seven grand finals as Essendon coach and he became the foundation coach at Greater Western Sydney at 64 years of age. The name Sheedy means different things to different people. He's clearly a high achiever, he's a trailblazer, a visionary and to many people an eccentric. He also is the most positive person I've met in my time in football and street smart and rat cunning. We've asked more than 20 people who have played key roles in the Sheedy journey to tell us about the man they know, respect or love, or all three. It's been a fascinating exercise. I hope you enjoy the results. It all started here, Kevin, with the old VFA club, Paran, the two blues. Oh, well, it did. It um, was a fantastic club when I first arrived here for the under-19s in uh, 1962 with a few mates. We just played local footy across the road here in a rugby ground for Tri-Boys. Kevy Bartlett had shifted to uh, Richmond at that time and my parents and uh, our family were still living in the um, Melbourne zone, which was good. Uh, but it was a fantastic club. That's when we first crossed paths. You with Paran, me at Werribee, 1966 VFA Second Division. You won't remember this, but I remember running into you late in a game. You turned to me, all 19 years of age or whatever you were, and said to me, that's the quickest way I know to get your name on an epitaph. Well, there was a lot of, co you know, cocky sayings around Pran in those days. That we, we were sort of knockabout kids, you know, and... Uh, I mean, this is the day of rock and roll and larrikins and bodgies, and, I mean, there were guys making comments like that all through your teenage years, and... Uh, so it does flow on sometimes that uh, you can be a bit cheeky at, and, uh, at the best of times, but really, in the end, You'd have to back it up at Paran and the back streets. You wore number 10 at both Paran and Richmond. Is there any special significance attached to that? Absolutely, yeah. I, there's no doubt. Bluey Shelton, I thought, was just a tremendously, um, you know, ruthlessly hard player. Uh, Essendon had a very fair side, very skilled side. Jack Clark, obviously, and Ken Fraser were fantastic also. But Bluey was just rough around the edges, and we liked him. Barry, you were Kevin's captain at Paran in the mid-60s. Tell us about the young Sheeds. Oh, he was never out of the place. We, we used to train Tuesdays and Thursdays. The under-19s trained Monday and Wednesdays. So you've virtually never seen them because they played on opposite grounds. But not Sheedy. He was here four days a week. He was here Tuesday and Thursday. And uh, he would get out on the ground and have a kick you know, when, when it was suitable for him to do it. He wouldn't join in the training, but he made himself known around the place, yeah. Pretty keen on the pies, as oh, in the I pies you the eat. Pie. Oh, I never without a pie in his hand. <laughs> and the, the women in the uh, in the canteen used to line them up. This is Kevin's like this one. They said, "We'll have a pie." No, they're gone. <laughs> <laughs> they're Kevin's. There had a pie in his hand, the football in the other. Were you nervous when you left Paran and crossed to Richmond? You were facing a five-year suspension from the VFA if it didn't work in the VFL. Oh, it was a pretty nerve-wracking time because uh, I, my knee at Paran was starting to really play. I hurt my knee badly just, just before the finals in 66 at Paran and Terry Alexander and myself, we all crossed and... Um, I mean, it was an administration fight more than players. You know, we were pretty keen to try and better ourselves, obviously, and I missed out in the 66 carnival and Peter went. So uh, I thought, well, you know, I'll go over and have a crack at Richmond. Well, they are there now, you know, which is yeah. another black and red club here, which I don't mind that, but... Uh... It is. Here it is, the famous number 10 locker. You're not the best player to wear number 10 at Paran. Well, Kenny it's only a matter of opinion. Kenny Emsel's in front of you. A very good play, Kenny Emsel. Yeah. Okay. Harold Bray was run over in a brown lane. Yeah, yeah, same That put you down to third. Bobby McKenzie played about 170 Your fourth. games. Yeah. Graham Yates was a star. I could beat Graham Yates. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got you fifth. What? <laughs> you hard. <laughs> Let's go back to 1969. Two days after your first premiership win, under national service, you've got to go to Pucker Punyal to do your two years Nasho. I remember Graham Richmond saying to me, look, 
Don't waste your two years, son. Just give it your best shot and learn as much as you can. And whilst you feel probably a little bit aggrieved and all that sort of thing that you might miss out on what other, other players are not going into the defence forces, um, he was right. You know, he was so right. I, I really enjoyed the Army. I thought the Army was a great learning learning curve for me as a, um, just to learn about defence. I coached a couple of years in the Army at 21, and, and that was a, a great experience with men coming back from the war zone in Vietnam. And the hardest, the hardest part I felt, which I never thought when I accepted the job from you know, Major, a guy called Major Fidok, was that you're going to be talking to people who are coming back from war. And I had not thought about that at all. And, you just can't take out of what you learnt off Tommy Hafey and Graham Richmond at Richmond and then walk straight into an army camp and tell these guys how to live life and play a game on courage. There's a perception that Sheedy was just a scrubby back pocket player, yet he excelled in the biggest games of all, the finals. Spell a hand pass across to Kevin Sheedy. Sheedy steadies. That's his third. You prided yourself on performances in the big games. You played in three premiership wins, you were very good in all of them, and you kicked eight goals. I know that's important to you. I couldn't have done any more as a player, I can assure you. I'm happy with the way I played in my grand finals and my finals appearances because, you know, my club voted me three or four times best in the final series, and I'll, I'll take that on the honour board. Well, I'll give you a stat that I bet a lot of people don't know. He had 15 shots for goal in grand finals. He kicked more goals in a grand final than Jonathan Brown and Wayne Carey. Kevin, fair dinkum, mate. You've got to put your boot into the ball. You're too slow to do all this finessing. Bloody back pocket plumber. That's what I want. You see the bloody straight? Get your boot to the damn thing. Heading towards goal. Your great mate Tommy Hafig said, you're nothing but a bloody back pocket plumber, Kevin. How did you take that from the man you revered so much? We all sort of respect what the coach says in, in many ways because, you know, I always believe that you should be able to kick left and right foot and handball left and right hand, and I've always felt that even when I walked into Richmond. I was taught that by my coaches here and Ray Harvey and some fantastic coaches at Bert Fritzlaff that I had here that you had to really get to learn left and right. Tommy, you only believe that you should kick on your, non, on your preferred foot. So that got me in a lot of trouble at times, and he'd always just yell out, kick it long. You know, when in doubt, kick it long. Well, as a matter of fact, he had 20 signs made up around my home where I lived in Richmond. I was lived by myself for about seven years. And he was a printer as a trade in those days. And he got 20 signs and put them up all around my house to kick it along. <laughs> Unbelievable. Tell us about your relationship with Hafey. You loved the man, didn't you? I love him in every way a person could love a person. He was just fantastic for all of us. And um, I mean, no one gets 100 in life, but he was pretty close to, um, and his, his development of people was fantastic. And, and his development of camaraderie in a team, knowing full well that not everybody was gonna be a teetotaler. Some guys drank, some guys smoked, and he didn't like that. But in general, uh, you would nearly always recognise that I would say 85 to 90% of his players loved him for most of his life. Kevin, you were a pretty handy cricketer in your day. My memory is that when 1978 you were appointed captain of the football club and you wanted to play in a district cricket final for Richmond and the Tigers knocked you back. That hurt you, didn't it? Well, it was annoying because I thought, I, I just felt that they were really wrong on the way they treated the Richmond Cricket Club, dual partners of the Oval there. So the Richmond Cricket Club was left without a spinner in a final series, which is, you know, can be diabolical. Jim Higgs had gone to the test side. And I was the one that was called up. And, and uh, they didn't want to allow that to happen. I said, well, that's your call because you own the contract. So in the end, um, I was off contract right of that year. And I refused to sign a contract unless I had an open clearance. And I made the Richmond Football Club sign an open clearance an open for, the rest, of my, for the rest of my career, yeah. Because they denied you the opportunity Correct. to play for yeah, the cricket club? Yeah. Because they did the wrong thing. So they gave you an open clearance yes. to any club of your choice in the, in the AFL? Correct. It's still in Brian Ward's safe. So you were angry about them not letting you... I just got them to sign the clearance fee. They'll never, ever let that happen again. Seeing that I'm the one that took five years' penalty to come, you don't need to have to do that at the end of players' careers. And they made the wrong call again. 
when I went to Western. Because they said in those days, a lot of people don't realise that, that a prospective coach leaving a club as a player to go and coach, you needed a clearance in those days too. And I had the clearance. So they couldn't charge Essendon 40000 Kevin, from Turak Park to the MCG. We've had 372 games here as a player and coach. That's staggering. This is your spiritual home, isn't it? Oh, it has been for a long time, yeah. My, my brother and uh, myself, we, um, we come here a lot. We went to school up at St Ignatius, so it was always in my eyesight, you know, as a kid when you're sort of in grade three. And, um, and of course, with Peter Ward, a photographer of the Herald Sun in the years that you worked with him, we all, we all played footy outside here yeah. for, um, for grade three, four, five, and six sort of stuff. So it was always outside the Richard footy ground on the MCG. We all had our games of footy. And of course, to eventually um, get a paper job here, I'm sorry, a lolly boy uh, job. Tell us how you got that lolly boy job. Well, it was the only way we could get in the ground. You can't jump the fence, obviously. <laughs> we jumped every other fence in football in those days, as you know what it was like. But we got a, a job down at uh, Claremont Street South Yarra. They were advertising for lolly boys for the uh, final series. And um, Pat What's and I, the year? Oh, we're looking at about 58, maybe seven, eight. And it, well, one of the years was definitely uh, Collingwood won the premiership in the mud. And uh, so we were getting, we would always be here first, you know quarter nine, eight thirty just to get make sure you get your tray and and then of course sold everything we could before the siren started the game and then we just sat down. One of my favourite columns that you wrote when you were working at Inside Football was you coming to the MCG the day before your grand finals, sitting in the Great Southern Stand and visualising what was going to happen the next day. Yeah well I think that was important from the point of view of uh, mentally just tuning in early. If I could get I, I don't think anybody understands the, the mental capacity of a competitor. Um, and to me, that was one of my strengths. Tell us your favourite memory at this place. My own was, um, <clears throat> oh, well, I think Barmy taking out Southby was a memory that I've never oh, forgotten. I don't say You've got it. It was a memory because you've never seen anything like that. We're with Southby and Barnes, pushed away by Wade and Southby. And Southby goes high. It's interesting what you say about that Barm incident. In the climate we're in now, it's just taboo but you sort of still think that it was the right thing to do at the time. Oh, we always got to hurt Carlton that day, after 72. Physically. Physically, yeah. Yeah, we all walked from Punt Road, not a long trip. Walked across the park here, we all knew that we were going to win because we embarrassed ourselves the year before. 28 goals, nine kicked against you. So whatever happened, happened, we understood that. What was your part in this, in this, when you were, the Tigers were going to rough up the Blues, what was your role? Oh, my part was just to hurt as many and hit as many as I could like anyone else. My memory of Kevin is that he got heavily criticised after the 1972 grand final. He was playing in the back, back line, he played in the back pocket, and uh, the Carlton Smallman, I think Trevor Keogh, was one that absolutely carved him up. And Richmond lost that grand final in 1972. It was a grand final that we were expected to win, and Kevin copped a lot of criticism, you know, for being beaten on that day. And then one year later, play against the same side at the MCG, playing as a ruck rover, he kicks the first three goals of the game to kickstart Richmond's comeback uh, in, in, a, in an attempt to, you know, beat Carlton and win that premiership. We'd beat Carlton in 69, and of course they had beaten us in, in 72. You know, when you think about it, you know, for the whole year he would have had that in the back of his mind that on grand final day he had to produce something really, really special to eliminate and raise, you know, that, that shocking memory of, of maybe not one of his greatest games in 1972. When his back was to the wall, he produced. It, it was the most physical game and I can remember John Nichols being fouled just near me. Uh, I was only 10 metres away and he was our captain coach and this happened just before quarter time. And uh, I can remember John, when he addressed the group at quarter time, you could tell that he was away with the fairies. Now, that didn't instill a lot of confidence in us because he was our hero, he was our coach. So John got knocked down. Jeff Southby got his jaw broken, which was a pretty vicious hit that Barmy put on him. Yeah, it was, it was on for young and old. There were a couple of famous exchanges between you and Sheets Wolsey. Did you ever belt him? Oh, I think I probably gave him a couple, but no, no more than what he gave me. Don't worry about that. There was a famous episode of Talking Footy, and Kevin Shetty said that famous quote of his, not all snipers were in Vietnam, and it was directed fairly and squarely at you. 
Don't no. talk in riddles. <laughs> Answer the question. And the question is... Robert, I never mentioned I, your name. Was I a sniper? All the 70s and 80s. That people out there making the comments. And if... And if I uh, said on the radio, if the hat fits, then we all I think And I wrote sad. about myself. It's just a bit sad that you go so far with your bluff and when your bluff's called, you back off. Were you offended when Kevin called you a sniper? Not at all. Because every now and again, I did snipe him. What upset me was that he wasn't prepared to say it's you I'm talking about. <laughs> the funny thing was, Kevin liked to portray himself as the battling back pocket plumber who was as cunning as a shithouse rat. You were on the committee that made the decision on the coaching job in 1980. Why did you prefer the untried sheet to the experienced genes? Kevin came along, there were 10 applications for the job. Uh, Two of them got a, a second interview, though, Kevin Cheedy and Alan Jeans. He actually got the job at a split vote. Quite funny, really, because three years later, they played off in the grand final. Jeans won the first one. The next two after that, Charles Sheedy won the next two. So he just offered something. He just offered. He, he, uh... I think Jeans, he wanted to do it because he get, didn't get any money at, at uh, St Kilda. He got 21 cents in the dollar. Whereas Kevin came out and he had a vision of what he wanted to do. Tim, you and Terry were here when Kevin arrived in late 1980. What was the feeling? I was excited. Um, I backed for Richmond as a kid and uh, I obviously had followed Sheed's career and then into the media and, and just the way he spoke. Like, we hadn't started training at that mm. time of the year ever before, had we, Terry? And no. somebody turned up and uh, he was like a field marshal and all of a sudden you could just sense that things were going to start changing around here and, you know, we had to wear a uniform to training for the first time and we're training five nights a week in <laughs> October and, I mean, honestly, some of us started to worry or not whether or not we'd still be able to survive mm. and get to Christmas time. Well, he year. painted the joint out, didn't he, Tim? Absolutely. He came in yeah. here and he dressed it all up. He said, oh, this is... Uh, replaced a bit of carpet around the lockers and uh, yeah. painted the lockers and the rooms and revved it up and then he got rid of smoking and... Then he tried to get rid of drinking beer in there, Bob. This is Terry Lloyd. I said, hang on a minute, mate. You can, you can cut the smoking now. out, but we're going to have to have a beer after. How much harder was it than the, the previous coach? Oh, it, was, it was probably um, double, maybe triple anything that we'd ever done before because before that, our pre-seasons were starting in January. Mm. We'd never started mm. in October before, so everything had been turned upside down. And, it was hard. He just he just pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed, and it was like, okay, well, if you survive this, you're going to survive a season of footy under me. There's big Vince Lombardi stuff, wasn't it? There's a lot yeah, of that. He must yeah, have read a few yeah, books. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen anyone die on a training track yet. Off the hands of the pack, hand pass from Lester Smith to Matthews, who steady shoots at goal. First club to Hawthorne. Here's Robertson streaming into goal. Two goals to Hawthorne. He couldn't miss them there, could he? Going after's Robertson. He's a dangerous player. A shot for goal. This is not bad. Another one. That's their third. There's a chance for another one. Duckworth and Matthews both find a good. Matthews goes down. He was nearly grabbed by the leg. And Ludwig puts it through for another one. Hawthorne hit the ground running in the 1984 grand final. Four early goals. What was the direction from the coach's box midway through the first quarter? Yeah, they got to a start. Then all of a sudden, Kevin made a, made a famous move. He sent, Simon, he sent the message to Simon Madden to start a fight. Well, Simon, you can imagine Simon trying to fight. Oh. It was quite funny. Finally, it comes out there to her, a hand pass. Oh, the fight's more interesting the than fight's the fight's still going. Players are going over left and right out there. As the but fight. anyway, we had a, had a bit of a fight. We had a fight, 83, 84, 85. And uh, it was just, just tough football. It was tough. We, we had to be, you had to be tough. You had to play Hawthorne. They were a very tough, rough side. You've been beaten by a record margin in the 1983 grand final and you're four goals down at three-quarter time in 84. How did Kevin convince the players that they could do the job? Well, at that stage, he turned around to the players and he says, have I ever told you a lie? And the players said, no. And he says, well, I'm telling you, you're going to win this grand final. And then he went out and told them how they were going to win. They kicked nine goals in the last quarter. The next year, we kicked 11 goals in the last quarter. He said at one stage, um, you have a look at him over there, and uh, Jeans was sort of, yeah, he was just sort of going, he was a bit animated, and, you know, he said, oh, yeah, it was a, maybe a little bit about the theatre of it. You know, they're rattled, um, you know, they're tired, you know, a lot of blokes sitting down, that type of thing. And because we had suffered such a massive loss in 83, I think that was still burning in the gut of most of the players, and I think that we all felt that we still had plenty left in the tank. So you thought we were going to win? You, you're well, I wasn't, confident? 
I wasn't thinking that we were going to win. I was thinking more along the line, I don't want to lose. Yeah. I remember being at the huddle three quarter time and him coming on, oh, just bouncing, bouncing on, saying how good we're going. And I looked at the scoreboard, we're 22 points down. Is he going to have to we're 22 points down? But by the end of the huddle, um, we all believed, you know, and he tossed the team around from forward to back and really gutsy move. I was pretty confident after about the five minute mark. We started very well yeah. in that last quarter, and it was true. I remember Rashid's words of, uh, we just got uh, Simon, now you've got to get your first hands on the ball. And Timmy, Daisy, or Leon, whoever was in there at that time, just get it, kick it forward. And we did just that, we got the board, uh, ball going yep. forward, and uh, and then think we, we got a bit of a roll on after that bomb. Yeah. And uh, things started to happen for us. Into this quarter by just on 35 minutes, there's the siren. Essendon winning their first flag since 1965. You love the few of his idiosyncrasies. But there was a lot to love about his oh, yeah. idiosyncrasies. You know, like he, we used to look at the clock on the shower stand out there, and we came out one night and had brown paper over it so that <laughs> nobody knew how long the drills were going. Yeah, yeah. It was just, it was always some silly stuff. He's onto everything, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. One night he, remember one night uh, we were out there on the training track and it was a full moon and uh, he stopped training. He used to blow the whistle, last person in, had yeah. to do 20 push-ups, and so we all sprint in, and we all get into this tight huddle, and he said, boys, look up there. And we're all looking up there thinking, you know, what, what the hell's going on? And he said, how in the hell did they get man up there? <laughs> <laughs> Tim, he could slaughter the language, couldn't he? I remember when he, he got Paul Hills, this was back in 93, and Hillsy was sort of, um, he was, he was a well-built kid, you know, like, and, but he didn't play overly aggressively, but, mm. you know, Kevin wanted to play with more aggression and got him out the front uh, before a game and said, have a look at him, boys, and, you know, have a look at his muscle deformation. And... Deformation. <laughs> 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 before games, he'd hand us pieces of paper with, um, you know, postmen who became movie stars. <laughs> I remember that one. That was his... That was his, his theme, the, the day of the game. Postman who became movie stars. And I still don't know what the relevance <laughs> to that game was. But looking back and asking him, actually, he, he thought the team was too stressed, too tense about the game, so he wanted to take their mind off football. When you first made contact with him, you came down from Canberra, Kevin had this penchant for bringing young kids back to earth. Did he do the same to you? He grabbed me and said, I'm Kevin, James, nice to meet you. Um, nice to meet you too, Kevin. Um, who do you think you're most like as a player? And I loved Tim Watson at the time and wanted to say Tim Watson, but thought, oh, well, you can't say you're Tim Watson. So I picked a, said, oh, Mark Thompson. He said, well, you're pretty happy with yourself, aren't you? <laughs> Shetty used to have his pets, blokes like Kevin Walsh, Roger Merritt and Dean Wallace. And sometimes his faith was questioned by the fans. Were you aware of the broad public perception that you were one of Kevin's project players? There's a particular incident I remember, and it really, I mean, obviously the penny had dropped before this, but I can't repeat what this woman yelled at me over... I was standing down at full back, standing next to a Richmond forward. I think it might have been uh, Roachy. And this woman's yelled this obscenity across the fence at us, and even Roachy hung his head when, <laughs> when this thing, when this woman said this. Kevin was famous for his team meetings. Did you actually sabotage one of those? We'd be in these meetings and he'd say to us, look, we're just going to watch a quarter. And, but we all knew that you get into the quarter and Kev starts rewinding it, pausing it, pointing out all these sort of various things that, you know, little pearls of wisdom that we should have been doing this and that and the other thing. And, before you knew where you were, you know, an hour had gone by. And anyway, I remember looking at this, uh, we're in one of these meetings, I'm sitting there, my head in my hands, I'm staring at the video machine, and I noticed that it looks very like the model that I've got at home. We're in the meeting, the players are there, all the assistant coaches, Kev, the president, general manager, and I've bought my remote from home. <laughs> 30 seconds in, he does his little rewind thing back to show us something, that some incident. So I just hit the fast-forward button, bring it back to where it was. And he's, he's scratching his head at this stage. He thinks it's a technical glitch. He gives it another go, rewinds it. I fast-forward it back to where it was before, and he knows then that there's a rogue remote in the room. Sheeds used to inspire the boys with stories of 
Essendon champions from years gone by and nobody could really remember half these guys because it was so long ago. And I remember him telling Falao in front of the players one day, you know, if you work as hard as I want you to, you could be the next Kevin Walsh. <laughs> and uh, Sheeds thought it was a huge statement. And I remember watching Falao walk out and he said to Dylan Shield, who's Kevin Walsh? And Shield said, I've got no idea. <laughs> Dennis, Kevin Cheney gave you your opportunity in coaching. Take us back to the, uh, the original contact. And one night I'm in bed, um, my wife comes in and wakes me up. I reckon it was half past 11. I don't know what she was doing up, watching a late movie. Um, and she said, Kevin Shooty's on the phone. I said, are you serious? So I went out and uh, Kevin said, I want to have a talk to you. I said, OK. So we met and uh, offered me the job um, as reserves coach assistant uh, to him at Essendon. When you uh, started coaching North Melbourne, given your experience with Kevin, was there anything that you'd learned that held you in good stead then? No, I just always knew he was unpredictable and, you know, you didn't want to be following Kevin. You wanted to be setting your own standards and your own approach and what you wanted to do. And I think, you know, a, a lot of the things that I learned off Kevin, I put into good uh, uh, use myself. But his unpredictability, his, his uh, positivity, and he was the most positive bloke you'd ever want to see. Your memories of the marshmallow game, fond or otherwise? Kevin just made that up on the spur of the moment. Uh, no one ever talked about uh, Essendon um, being soft or anything. I think it probably all started as a result of Mick Martin dragging uh, Jimmy Hurd around the southern side, uh, half forward flank, Richmond in Boundary. And Kevin just got jack of it, and we'd beaten them a few times. And he's told the Essendon players that uh, um, and North Melbourne reckon they're uh, soft. And that's how the Marshmallows thing started. It was a, it's an amazing thing, the, the amount of publicity and interest in the game because of Kevin doing that was a, just, I look at it now and think, gee, I can remember waking up the, the Saturday morning and all my front lawn was covered in marshmallows. <laughs> I've got a multiple choice question for you. Were you A, adventurous, B, left field, C, zany, or D, crazy? <laughs> no, I think I'm adventurous. I like a bit of adventure. I think it's, uh, and I think it's with people. You know, to me, it's about people. It's only sometimes, well, OK, the marshmallow might be, but we did a lot of good things to get crowds. Yeah, you know, the bums, bums it's not a criticism. Yeah, no, no, I'm not worried. I'm not feeling criticised. But, you know, like, I remember going to Ireland and uh, we're in Ireland and we get beaten in Galway and Jimmy, Jimmy signs, uh, says, well, it's going to be a tough game in Ireland, Dublin next week. I said, why would you say that, Jim? We've been playing well, beat them twice last year, just got beaten by a kick tonight. I said, what do you, what do Irish people really don't like? What don't they like? She said, whatever you do. Don't call them leprechauns. <laughs> so I immediately went in the press conference and, and they gave me a bit of a hard time. So I said, look, just go and tell all the leprechauns in Ireland, I'll see them in Dublin next week. <laughs> wow, mate, we had 82 or 3,000 come. Greatest ever crowd. And he said, mate, you are just you over are the top. Yeah, but it's so funny. David, tell me about the time Kevin crossed paths with Liam Gallagher of Oasis. Yeah, well, he got invited across to Manchester United to meet Sir Alec Ferguson. And anyway, we get in the box, it turns out Liam Gallagher as an Australian security guard who'd briefed, uh, briefed him about who Sheeds was and he's opening to Sheeds in this sort of chin-up in his Manchester way was, you know, how good were you? Did you ever play in front of 300,000 in Brazil? Sheeds' response was, no, the best of it, it was 100,000 a week for 22 weeks for 27 years <laughs> at the MCG. Did Oasis ever do that? <laughs> and there was a bit of swearing in amongst the exchange, but uh, Gallagher just, um, you know, immediately warmed to him. And by the end of the, by the, end of the day, uh, Sheeds had taken it upon himself to try to patch up the relationship between Liam and Noel Gallagher. He said, I've got to get this band back together. <laughs> and, you know, he, he never sees a task as impossible. Do you think that you were a better player or a better coach? I know it's a better coach. Were you? Oh, when you got an Essendon coaching job, there's only sort of six available spots because the other six were legends. You know, you got Kenny and Hafey and Barasti and Parkin and... Jeans. Jeansy and so there's only six spots left. And, and when you look back at life and, and to get six and keep that job for 27 years. What was the biggest hiccup along the way for Sheeds at Essendon? Well, there was a, an incident in 1997 and there was a meeting at the Hilton that Graeme McMahon, the late, great Graeme McMahon, and um, his vice president came to. The message being, you should quit while you're ahead, Sheedy, you've lost, you've lost the, the faithful. And Sheedy just sat there and listened to it 
and he basically said, Graham, you're ruling over a divided city. If you started acting like a president and started believing in these players like I do, you'd see a premiership side staring you in the face and they, they're pretty hard to come by. But I understand that night uh, at the meeting, McMahon was at his magnificent best, but basically he delivered the Kevin Sheedy speech and uh, that basically calmed everybody down. Uh, I think there was one possible half-raised hand about discussing Sheedy. He was reappointed and, of course, they went on to win the 2000 Premiership. Did the Tigers ever get close to luring Kevin back to Punt Road as coach? There was a negotiation that I had with Leon Daphne with Kevin's knowledge and consent. Remember the cycle, we'd, we'd done the Graham McMahon negotiation, that was another two-year deal and we were coming to the end of that. Um, and uh, I just said, look, you know, it might, be, it might be time to think about that, if you think so. So I went and spoke to Leon and, and really it was a done deal. I underestimated the connection between Sheedy and Ron Evans and I think they met for dinner and the next morning he rang me and said, I'm staying. And I had to make that call to Leon, which I didn't, I didn't enjoy. That's about the only time. But those two instances happened prior to the 2000 Premiership. So it proves you've got to stay the course if you believe. And what drove Shooty then, as often is the case, is just his belief in the players and his belief in the prospects of succeeding. How did you feel when Essendon came to you with six rounds to go in 2007 and said that your contract wasn't going to be renewed? Were you wounded? Oh, I would say yes. Yeah, I probably should have left the... Probably should have left about 82. When, you know, when you had to... 82? Sorry, uh, 2002. Yeah, that's better. You might have missed a couple of flags if you'd, yeah. if you'd gone then. You know, I meant 2002, yeah. But look, I, I look back in 2002 and... You know, we, we, when you got to sit down with Damien Harwick and tell him he's not going to be on the list anymore because our salary cap's going to blow up, and then within eight months, basically in the end, tell Blumfield, Carousella, and, and Heffern, and right in the prime of their careers, that we're, I've got to basically sack them and trade them. You know, I thought that was a, a very difficult time. I think that was the most difficult time I've ever had in my life in footy. You knew that it was going to come sooner or later because I'm near the end of a contract. But I think in the end it was, uh, it was a good decision. It was my time to leave Essendon. Peter, you were the CEO at Essendon in 2007, Kevin's last year. Did you shoot Bambi? You know, there was a lot of people involved in that decision. Uh, that wasn't a particularly hard decision. I mean, Kevin had been there for, you know, a lot of years. 27. Uh, 27 years. And I think that a lot of people thought, and maybe even Kevin, uh, on reflection, thinks that he probably stayed there a little bit too long. You get there, you're that, there that long, you become part of the uh, furniture, you possibly lose your edge a little bit. So I don't think the decision itself was hard, but of course, doing it and implementing and dealing it with, with the public publicity of it all, that was, that was a challenge for everybody. The club's made a decision and you move on and, you know, you'll come and go and you'll leave them in better shape. Kevin, you coached some great players in your time. Who was the best? James Hurd. Ruthless, tough. I underscored uh, Simon Madden, mm. I reckon, as a coach. I reckon he's... When I look back, I realise... I mean, this guy's a pretty great player. But when you get back to James, who, when, when he actually had his skull fractured in West Australia in five or six places, for him to come back and win another two best and fairest, and the first match he went for the ball, I thought, wow, yeah, yeah, there's something special about him. And now Smith to half forward, Bolton in front, man in the back. Numbers here with the bombers, Heard dives in. Brilliantly played. What do you think his greatest triumph was? I, I, look, I think in, in footballing, the whole of the entire of his career was getting Essendon to win a premiership in, in 84 and, you know, building a team that, that really a club that had gone into mediocrity for so long and, and coming in in, was it 81 or 82 he came in as, as 81, coach? Yeah. 81, and just um, saying, right, this club is no longer going to be mediocre, we're going to be a hard-nosed football club. And he, he moved on a lot of good Essendon players who just hadn't got to that level. And, and from that, that time, he created Essendon, or 
turned Essendon with some other people into being a, a suburban football club that hadn't done anything for 20 years, like 19 years since they'd won their last premiership, into a powerhouse of the AFL. It's going to be Essendon. You're younger and fitter. You're just going to make, your, make sure that you're tougher and want to play on quickly. Come on! The 93 premiership with the group of players we had was, was pretty extraordinary. I mean, you've got maybe eight players, 19, 20, who'd played a, you know, less than 30 games of football. 50 metres out. Still going. 30 metres out. Oh, what play! It may have been touched on the line. No! We weren't expected to even make the final, so to win a premiership off the back of that, I think, was um, pretty amazing. And the feeling in the football club at that time was just take it on. And he's got a message for one of the opposition He's sap. I know you and Kevin are friends, but I don't know whether you know this, but he was deeply wounded when the AFL, led by you, fined him $10,000 for slitting his throat in a gesture to Mitchell White. Yes, I do know he was disappointed, and he made that known. Um, and I think he was hurt by it, given the impact that he, you know, he'd, in his mind, had, as a contributor to the game. But look, it was an inappropriate action, and... Uh, I think that was the origin of him calling me Vlad. Uh, I was Vlad the Dictator thereafter, and that, that name stuck for a number of years. There's been a host of achievements in your time, on the field, off the field, and in the interest of the game. Mm. Tell me one or two that stand out that you take great personal pride in. Well, look, I, you have to say Anzac Day in, in, in Dreamtime and this country game that we've worked on this year, I think they're just going to be great icon games. Some of them are now. I think the country game's going to be exciting, really. I mean, just recently I met with 150 mayors from coastal cities around Australia wondering what they could do to get involved in the, the country game between us and Geelong because they need to promote their country areas and regions. So that's got a huge growth. We didn't need to, get, need to go head to head with, um, you know, State of Origin with the um, NRL. But I think if we build three logistically great games for Australian people to love, for the love of our country, our defence and our Indigenous, where we've never built a great bridge there over the 200 years, and of course 8.6 million people in the country uh, need some love. Kev, a couple of months ago, you and I were guests of the governor, Linda Dessau, at Government House. Yeah. Coincidentally, there was a group of Aboriginal kids there that day. We threw them a footy and then watched them for a half an hour go through their skills on the lawns. It's a great memory, wasn't it? It was a lot natural, wasn't it? Just, just kids running and jumping, taking speckies. And of course, um, and that's what they're capable of. They love it, they do it. I went to the Elko Islands. David Matthews sent me up to Elko Island. 5,000 Aboriginal kids, uh, men and women, live on an island just, just up the top of Australia, but on the other side of Australia to um, Tiwi Islands. They play footy every day. Their women's team's incredible. Uh, Gilawinka is a major town on that island. And, um, you know, when you, when you sit back and see how many Norm Smith medals have come off the Tiwi Islands with, um, there's only 4,000 people there, which half are women. So you've got 2,000 male Aboriginal people on, on those Tiwi Islands, and you've got three Norm Smith medals. That's an incredible story itself. Over his half century in the game, Sheedy has travelled the length and breadth of Australia, spreading the Aussie rules gospel. And recently, he visited the Victorian seaside town of Port Arlington. So I'm from Dallas, Texas, originally. So yeah, came here about two and a half years ago. And when I got here, I learned two things. One, to love the bombers, and two, to love him and Sheedy, so. <laughs> you can't beat that guy. Very proud. Thank you very, very much. Proud of we you. love those Americans. <laughs> we talked about Kevin's initiatives in football and the contribution on the broad sense. There was one I suspect that was close to your heart. Yeah, it was more around, a, uh, you know, a tragedy more than anything. I was around the time when there was um, that, that, that terrible, terrible incident in Mildura where, where a number of teenagers were killed uh, in that tragic road incident and uh, we had a call from Kevin shortly after that happened in Mildura and he wanted Richmond and Essendon to play a game up in Mildura, uh, particularly for the community. I think 12 to 13,000 people turned up for the game, the parents of the, of the children turned up for the game. It was a very, very moving experience and the two clubs were fantastic in support but that was a, again another Kevin Sheedy, uh, you know, uh, idea that originated to try and put something back into the community and they're the sorts of things that Kevin does and has been doing for so long and 
he, he probably doesn't receive the credit that he deserves on that front. You were in office when GWS was created, one of the major initiatives of your time at the AFL. You handpicked Kevin Sheedy to coach that team. Why? We were going into a market where two and a half million people, probably 2.499 million people, never heard of AFL football. It's a very diverse community. You know, I think there's about, from what I understand, 90 to 100 languages spoken in that community. Very large indigenous population. A tough market, particularly when you're going into sort of rugby league heartland and, of course, soccer. And we needed to get some traction and we needed to get a name and we needed to get someone who was probably bigger than the game in many respects. And th there was only one choice. And at the end of the day, it was Kevin Sheedy. Don't and ever let any club or player dominate you. From a long way away, I think the trademark of your style has always been the sun will come up tomorrow, we've got to look forward rather than look back, and you don't get immersed in gloom. No. You're an optimist, don't you? Yeah, I am. You know, I think that there's... I mean, look, my first, you know, icon person in my whole life, and he still is, is Walt Disney. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I went to Disney World Florida and did a creative thinking course in, uh, I think it was 1990, on what you could do with a game or a sport or your business. They're business conferences, these are. And what he's been able to achieve in, in the world to make kids and people positive and happy is just remarkable. So um, when my son did my famous footy team, he put my icons in the back on the wall in frames and, and he was the first one, Muhammad Ali, you know, Vince Lombardi, Edward de Bono, all these, Palais, they're all my people I love to you know. Kevin, is there anything that you didn't do or you haven't done in football that you wanted to do or are you totally fulfilled with what you've done? Uh, look, I... I think that we've got to look at the game to go overseas at some stage, eventually, and just keep pursuing looking at that. I think that's important because if we keep going back to the same well of fans all the time and keep asking them to put more money into the game, I think that there, there's a lot of um, revenue out there outside Australia and I think we should keep looking at that. Now, that'll take a while, but I'm patient. I, I, you know, I'm very happy I went to the Giants. I'm very happy that um, the Tom Wills have a footy team in his own backyard in the west of Sydney and Canberra because that's where he was born. There's been a host of achievements both on the field and off the field and in the best interest of the game. Are there any that particularly stand out for you? Oh, <laughs> well, first of all, I never thought in my whole life I'd ever kick the first three goals in a grand final. That's one. And secondly, to change a losing scoreline in 84 to a winning premiership wrestling after 19 years. OK, the 84-85 teams compared with the team of 2000? Well, the 84-5 team won two premierships and got the three grand finals, so they win. Best on winning premierships. But the other team lost one game in a year. So which way do you want it? Do I love my daughter or do I love my sons? <laughs> my wife, my cousin. Speaking of family, how important have, have they been to you on the... Because yours has been an unusual journey. It's taken you to lots of different places, demanded a lot of you. Oh, well, my first of all, my, my mother and my brothers and sisters have been sensational. You had, what, six or seven brothers? There's seven of us in the family, so there's three boys and three girls. I probably have left them and gone and done what I've loved to do, and I didn't get to see a lot of them, to be honest. Um, and, and they know and been very good about my passion for footy and my passion for Australia. So uh, when I get to see them, we have a great time. And I don't see enough of them, haven't seen a, enough of them in my life, to be honest, and they know that. It's the truth. You regret that? Yeah, you, well, you can't do everything, Michael. That's the problem. He travels the world. He's, mm. he's got that vision. He'll be in America and he's eyeing off grounds over there. And I'm going, why are you looking there? And he's been in India. Yeah, I rang think... him one day and he's just out of Shanghai. I said, what are you... I never... Every time I try to ring him, he's in an airport coming mm. from somewhere or... Barbara, as the eldest of the seven Chitty children, mm. tell us what Kevin was like as a little brother. He was a sweet little boy. Kevin, he was a nice sweet. boy. Absolutely. He was this blue-eyed little blonde boy that I remember that sort of kept out of things. Patrick and I made all the noise. He was behind. He learnt young to be an observer and just be quietly does it. And um, I never, ever remember him ever being in the rough and tumble. He uh, just grew up with his football. we got to share his life with everyone else in lots of ways, like Geraldine's another one that's got to share 
family. He's had a great wife in Geraldine. Yeah, yeah. She has really had such a, a journey and the children and Kevin taking mm. off and being available because it's been the absolute love of his life, football. And I've always said to people, he's one lucky man that he's loved his work, but he's mm. just expanded on it. But my own boy and uh, Sam and the girls, um, they've had a pretty tough year. Geraldine's been extremely supportive, there's no doubt about that. And so I've been sports from that point of view because some, something and someone's got to give and they always gave that time slot. Has Geraldine ever said to you, Kevin, it's my turn? Well, she's trying at the moment, to be honest. We have children and grandchildren live in the state. We have um, areas of what I want to still do in my life, and, and so does Geraldine, so that's always difficult. And of course, uh, so I try to get them somewhere near both together, we're all happy. Don't always succeed at that, Michael. Has his obsession with football ever driven you mad? Um, yeah, at times it does, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because he's still obsessive and, well, he loves what he does. Did you get angry about the amount of time he spent away from home? Did you have that feeling that you're a single parent? Yeah, many times, Michael. Um, but, you know, that was the role I took on, I suppose, when I married someone high profile and you know, public and and the public think they, I suppose, own you a bit sometimes. We've been out as a family to restaurants or on holidays, like, they're there all the time, so that's just part and parcel of it and you don't always like it, but um, most most people are pretty conscious of your, your private time and, and polite, but not everyone. Have the kids ever said to you, why isn't Dad home more often? Why don't we see more of him? Um, yes, yeah, they have. And what do you yeah. say to them? Well, when they were younger, I suppose, um, he was out working. I mean, they had they had a pretty good lifestyle. We had, you know, lovely holidays. Um, they went to good schools. Um, we ate out a lot. Like, they had a pretty good, good life, but he wasn't always home. Sam, what's it like being Kevin Sheedy's son? It, it's hard at times. Um, footy has consumed, or his time poor around the family, but, yeah, like... I uh, wouldn't trade that for everything that we've done as a family and, yeah, I think it's... I wouldn't trade it at all. Did you ever resent the time that Kevin didn't have at home? Um, I didn't resent it. Like, I missed... We were just talking before, like, I think it was my communion. Um, Dad wasn't there for and Dad's brother, Pat, um, filled in for Dad. But I never resented resented it at all. I just, to me, that was Dad's job and it just happened to take him away from a lot of, a lot of family things. Jess? Yeah, I, I don't think you resent it. Um, I think you learn to cope with it and you learn to, to live with, you know, not having him around as much as you'd like. But you certainly do miss having his presence at, at certain, you know, events or during certain times of your life. Um, and you do miss that, but I guess it's it's no different to a lot of other kids as well. Everything that's come his way he's earned. Yeah. He recognised anybody that's helped him along the way. Times when he when he, he had 200 games at Richmond and he's all, all these sort of things when they had the celebrations, he always invited himself along, his under-19 coach along. Uh, even the uh, nun that taught him at, at the, church, the church along. Well, every, everybody that helped him on his news agents he used to sell papers on the corner of Chapel Street and, uh, and Melbourne Road. And uh, even, even invite those people to his functions, freely as a guest. And uh, I admire him for that. And he's always around the club here still. We played under one of the, one of the great football figures. There might be people who have made a greater contribution to the game, but there hasn't been, I don't think, another character, no. like a football character like Kevin. He was one of the greatest players I ever played with, Kevin. Kevin worked so hard, I and mean, he's a great credit to himself. He was a person who loved the game, just loved it. Always had a football in his hand or a cricket ball in his hand as a kid. But he, he always wanted to compete, and he was always keen to be very, very skillful, worked very, very hard at his game. And when he was at Richmond, he actually took on a job eventually, uh, you know, going around all the schools. 
promoting football. I think he was the very first one ever employed by a football club. So by going around to the schools, he was handballing every day, kicking every day, both sides of his body. He really honed, he, t he used his job to actually hone his skills. Tommy Hafey uh, is a pretty tough judge of, of players. He always said to me that Kevin Sheedy is the greatest back pocket player that's ever played the game. For me, he's a legend of the game. I think he's the, the greatest thing that's happened to Essendon in the last 50 years, there's no doubt about that. We share the same view. His intellect's undervalued, isn't it? Yeah, I think people think that, a lot of people think they're smarter than Kevin Sheedy when they go into a conversation. Um, this is my feeling, it's might be totally wrong. And Sheets likes that, I think, because it leads them to underestimate him a little bit. And he's assessing you all the time. Like the one thing you know when you're talking to Sheets, he's, he's looking at your elbows, your, your hands, your, and what are you thinking, where are you coming from? So he's, he's assessing and trying to understand where, where you're coming from, um, which is important. But he's extremely, in smart individual who's made his own way in life with not along a tradition not along a traditional path. I mean Kevin's path is in no way traditional but at his peak as a coach he was a very influential person in Australian society, not just in football and not many of us can say that. What's your favourite cheaty moment? Oh the, yeah the mark here in the pocket yeah the one hand of mark and the handball over the top. Sproul takes it well, Shepparton from the pocket. Sproul kicks right across the face of goals. Will there be a mark awarded to Sheedy? Should be. It's going to be difficult. He hand pass. Oh, look at that! Off the fingers. Oh, it was too easy. Well, I think the one out of mark was one of my best of all time. You know, it was fun. I mean, look, you never. I mean, they're things you dream of as a kid. And um, I've had a lot of dreams fulfilled. I'm very, very fortunate. Little bloke from Paran that just battled his way uh, along then somehow they got to Richmond and as a lot of people said, he couldn't kick, wasn't a great mark, couldn't run very fast, but 50 years later, still having a go. Do you still love him? I do, Michael, yes, I do. <laughs> they say the devil you know is better than the one you try. Um, no, he's been a good husband. He's been a um, very good provider and been a good father and very supportive and I do love him still. Yeah, there's no one else I'd rather start with over again. <laughs> what he's done for the game in a, in a bigger picture, um, even just the games that he's created with the Anzac Day and, and the country game and all that, I think that's just, you know, he's just drawn crowds and, and fans and, and how he's grown the game has just been pretty remarkable. Your love for football is as strong today as it was, I reckon, when you were a lolly boy at eight. It's just an amazing thing. The passion never subsides, does it? To me, it's about my life, you know, and I've taken it on board and, mate, I'm lucky. I, I found something I actually love and, you know, a lot of people don't have that in life. Sheedy, oh, beautiful pass. Oh, look at that. Off a hand pass across to Kevin Sheedy. Sheedy steadies. That's his third. Driving Darwin. <laughs> this one done right, I'd say. Difficult. He hand pass. Oh, look at that! This premiership was Sheedy's premiership with these tremendous moves he made, Bob. Thank you very much.